Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. I do see a couple of hands up, so um, we have a couple of hands up. If we can grab a couple of Bibles and put those in their hands, it should be marked uh, to the third chapter. But starting with verse 1, and I'll just read verses 1 through 7, and then we'll read verses um, 8 through 13 a, a bit later. Starting with verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Je uh, Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have br uh, briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit uh, to his holy prophets, or his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Lord, we just thank you again for your word. It's more necessary than our food. Lord, we pray that you'd nourish us Convict us, comfort us, strengthen us, whatever we need this morning, by your Spirit, in your name we pray, amen. Well, if you were here the last few weeks, uh, we talked about in chapter 2 uh, the fact that, you know, first, this concept that Paul says that everyone, the whole world without Christ was dead, but God. But God actually opened our eyes, and this, this very month... Um, 22 years ago, me and my wife came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We thought we were alive, but we realized that morning we were dead and our trespass and sin, and God made us alive to the gospel, and we came to know the Lord as our Savior. Many of you, you can remember that time when you passed from death into life. And then we looked at the fact that um, not just that, but, but now, after that moment of salvation, Jesus began to reveal that... Uh, not only has he saved us individually, but he's put us together as one body. And it didn't matter where you came from or what your background was. And that God doesn't have segregation in the body of Christ. Man segregates, but God broke down that middle wall of separation. And so Paul is continuing on kind of the, the uh, explanation of this to say that this was a mystery in the past, that's not a mystery anymore. That not only did God reveal how people would be saved, but then he would reveal what the saved family would look like. And it would have been different than what certainly the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul was himself zealous for religion before he was saved, was he not? But he was zealous for all the wrong things. He had a, ze he had a zeal but not according to the knowledge of God, which God would then give him and reveal to him that, Paul, no, no, uh, you are not to destroy and kill people, but you are going to be called to unite and bring people together, which was the ministry of Jesus, for God so loved the world, not just Jerusalem, not just Galilee, not just Jewish people, or not just Gentile people, but the world. And in these days, it would have been mysterious because certainly anyone that had been uh, associated with the temple, they understood 
that wall of separation. They understood that there was a court of the Gentiles. They understood that there was a division. But to Jesus Christ, in Christ, he would reveal that God from the beginning desired that all the nations be one family. And I look out this room and it's always, it's a blessing. Every time I get in the pulpit, I see what God has done in this body. All the different backgrounds and, you know, some of you with different languages and from different, and some of you even from weird places like California and stuff like that. And, and God has put you, uh, I love to pick on the Californians. They are our biggest state. Come on. But um, God has done a neat work and and it is mysterious, though. I'll tell you what it is a mystery still, that God could use us. I'm sure the apostles felt, what a mystery that you know, Peter would think, how could me, a fisherman untrained, stand up in Jerusalem with all of the learned priests and everything and preach and 3,000 come to Christ? And when he spoke, that he's speaking in one language, everyone's hearing it in their language because it was a foreshadow it was a foreshadow of the mystery that God would reveal to Paul that all the nations, all the tongues, all the tribes would be one in Jesus Christ. And so Paul continues this. He say, well, isn't this kind of a continuation of chapter 2? It is, but then he goes a little bit deeper. So we want to continue on this morning and understanding what it is uh, that God has done in Christ that was a mystery at, some time, at one time that no longer is. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing you want to look at this morning and it is on. There we go. If you're taking notes, the first thing we want to look at starts in verses 1 and 2 here. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. He specifically mentions the Gentiles. Now, Paul uh, was a Jew of Jews, the tribe of Benjamin, and he, again, zealous for the faith of his forefathers. But of all, God called Paul to say, hey, you are going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Paul, again, as we've talked about many times, went into synagogues and always reached out to his Jewish brethren. Uh, that was his custom. But almost every place he went, the church would become more, because there's population-wise, in every city there was more Gentiles than there were Jews. So if the church grew and people were getting saved, it would always become a larger, and, and take Richmond, no matter, how big, no matter how big of a Jewish population in this city, there's far more Gentiles in this city than there are Jewish people in the city. So if the church were to grow and people get saved, by definition, you probably would have uh, a church that would be more Gentile than Jewish. However, God is bringing both together. And Paul, said, Paul was specifically given this calling. And he says, indeed, in verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace which God has given to me for you, again, he's speaking here to the Gentile body, how that that revelation was made by the mystery as I have briefly written already, and that's back in chapter 2, which was the, uh, the work that we saw of God first to salvation and then breaking down that middle wall of separation. In verse 5, though, he says, um, which in ages to come was not made known to the sons of men. And so we want to look at this first uh, point unveiled this morning. Remember as a kid when you accidentally stumbled upon your soon-to-be-given Christmas gifts that were hidden by your parents somewhere in the house, and you weren't looking for it, you stumbled in. Now, some of you, and you know who you are in this room, were looking. <laughs> you didn't accidentally stumble on them. I can honestly say I did, I did many things that were wrong, 
but I was never, I always wanted to be surprised. I actually wasn't thrilled when I ran into the gifts that my parents didn't hide well enough. And if you have boys, you can't hide it well enough because every inch of the house is a play zone. So anyway, you'd find something like, and some of you it wasn't accidental, but, but God's hidden things can't be just stumbled upon. God's hidden things can't be just stumbled into or found out unless by God's sovereign will he allows it. That makes sense? In other words, you couldn't just stumble into some truth. God would have to allow you to see it. Many times God in the Bible says he takes the veil off the eyes. It was hidden from them, even the apostles at times. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. There are secret things that are hidden for a period of time. Moses, by the way, spoke these words, Deuteronomy 29, 29. So he said, there was a time when the secret things were with God, but now he shared them, even way back then uh, with the early nation of Israel, he has shared them that they would be with the children of Israel forever, and that they would use the knowledge of what God's revelation to now do the will of the Lord. Does this make sense? That when God reveals uh, something to us, it's not that we just know it. Oh, now we know a lot of stuff. He reveals it that we would actually now use this revelation for his glory. When God reveals or unveils something, it's for the purpose first and foremost of his glory. It's never for our glory. We do we all agree with that? Everything God reveals is for his glory, his plan, and our acceptance and our role within that plan. Notice the words of Moses. Belong that we may do these things. If you're taking notes, first understand that what was revealed or unveiled prior to that point would have been a mystery. Everything was a mystery until God reveals it. Everything is. We'll briefly look at two uh, aspects of this revelation that Paul is speaking of, uh, what is being revealed. Well, first to understand, again, back in, here in verse 6, says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, united as one. This wall of separation broken down, again, that we looked at back in chapter 2 as well, uh, that Jesus, through him, all the sons and daughters of Abraham, all the, anyway, all of those that have been brought in by faith. Remember, Abraham believed God, it was counted in righteousness. So not just the bloodline of Abraham, but that those that believed by faith would be the sons and daughters of Abraham. And not just uh, a nation, but they would be brought into, as we looked last week, the household of God, a family. Do you want your house just to be like a bureaucracy or a family? Do you want it to have love and fellowship, or you want it just to be, uh, hey, how you doing? I'm your dad. Nice to meet you. Or do you want there to be real relationship, that in Jesus there would actually be the household of God, that God is breaking down all the walls that keep us from having the relationship and the fellowship that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have. If you take... Um, the mystery, the way it would have been understood, it says here in verse 5, look at verse 5 for just a second, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles, Peter, James, 
John, these different apostles, and prophets, Apollos, Philip the Evangelist, the apostles, the prophets, but then also the prophets in times past, Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. It was a mystery to them what God was going to do as it relates to salvation, how he was going to bring it about. They'd never seen the cross before. None of them had envisioned that Jesus would come and die on the cross. They didn't see what was coming. They didn't understand how God would do salvation. And they didn't understand, after salvation, how God would unite the Jews and the Gentiles, which were at odds. If you understand uh, that God had foreshadowed these things, they were in the Scriptures. Take two prophetic and messianic verses in the book of Isaiah, for example. Um, the religious yet unredeemed rabbis, as well as the Old Testament prophets, even the apostles themselves, under the ministry of Jesus, they would have expected that God was going to do something good for the Gentiles. That, that they understood. Take, for example, you ever heard of this city called Nineveh? God sent a guy named Jonah. Was Jonah Gentile or Jewish? He was Jewish. He was Jewish. He was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was a Gentile city that was violent, immoral, to the nth degree. So much so that Jonah wanted a fireball to drop on Nineveh. Jonah wanted nothing to do with Nineveh. He wanted Nineveh destroyed, and God said, no, no, I love him. So even in the Old Testament, there was a foreshadow of God sending a Jewish prophet to a Gentile place and giving mercy and grace. But still, Jonah and other prophets, even in the Old Testament, they would have thought, well, that's fine and good. God might save Nineveh, but Nineveh will stay with Nineveh, and Jerusalem will stay over here. Do you see? A lot of times people are this way too. Hey, I want you to be saved, but I'm not, I don't want to hang out with you after you get saved. Right? And that's not of the Lord. That's of the flesh, and Jesus was going to break this down. But in their understanding, they weren't trying to, to think this way. They just couldn't see what God was going to do. So they would think, all right, there are Old Testament passages that seem to say God loves Gentiles. There are things that we've seen that indicate God will do some things for the Gentiles, but they did not foresee the Jews and the Gentiles under a common covenant. They didn't see them under a relationship. They didn't see them as members of the same family. They thought God would do this for the Gentiles and this for the Jewish people, and they would actually serve God in their own way same God, but not necessarily together. So when they would read the prophet Isaiah, they would miss the full meaning of what God was saying. Take, for example, Isaiah 49, 6. Indeed, listen to the verse, Isaiah 49, 6. Indeed, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? By the way, my servant is capitalized. That's messianic. That would be Jesus. It, my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Certainly Jesus came first to the household of Israel. goes on and says, I also will give you as a light to the Gentiles. Same verse. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. All right? If they would read that verse, they say, okay. All right, Jesus is going to raise up the 12 tribes. That's what it says in the verse. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to restore the glory. He's going to sit as the king, the priest, the savior, the Messiah. Yes. Oh, he's also going to do something for the Gentiles. 
well, that must be a secondary work. And God's going to show later, it's not a secondary work, it's one work. It's not secondary, it's one work. Isaiah 60, verse 3, same prophet. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Well, again, when rabbis would read that, they would say, this is great, the Gentiles will come here and worship. They will come here. Now, that's true. God will set up his kingdom. There's no disputing that the kingdom of Jesus will be set up in Jerusalem. The thousand-year reign of Christ will be in Jerusalem. But it's not going to be, well, Jewish people all over here, Gentile people. There is going to be one family worshiping the king. That's the location. But God was using Israel as a light. God uses you and me as a light, but we're not better than the people that we share Christ with, are we? No. We just have come sooner, but as soon as they come, they have the same place at the table. And Jesus is revealing through his ministry and now through the work of the Apostle Paul, what he's given Paul, he said, Paul, I'm going to have you write epistles that are explicitly detailed on what I have done and am doing and will continue to do in the world. They weren't, uh, in the future, they won't be coming to worship Israel. No, they'll be coming to worship the King of Kings in Israel. Understand the difference. When we're in the new kingdom, we will not be going to worship Israel. We will not be going to worship the temple. We'll be worshiping the king of kings in the temple. That makes sense? That's the work that God is doing. No one will be a second-class citizen. No one will be in the outer court if they've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, if they've been cleansed by the blood. There will be members of the same family. Same table, same throne of grace, same mercy seat for everyone. And so Paul lays this out, that this glorious news has two aspects related to the sovereignty of God. Two aspects we want to look at real briefly here. Number one, it's his will and his timing, his being, of course, God's. There was and always will be the will and plan of God. God has a will and a plan that's before time. We find out about it in our time and in his timing. But his will was already there. His plan was already present. Verse 3, it says, How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Well, if God made known to Paul the mystery, Paul is saying by definition, God already had the plan. He just recently told me. Right? Jesus told the apostles many things that were new news to them, but they weren't new news to God. It was always part of his will, always part of his plan. Something was being revealed to Paul that was hidden, but it was already there. We just didn't know about it. Also in verse 5, it says, In the ages, um, it says, was, um, In the ages, before was not made known to the sons of men. So it wasn't made known to them, but that doesn't mean that God couldn't have made it known. He just, in his timing, had not done that yet. But his will, the mystery, was not yet revealed, but the plan was already in place, just like these verses in Isaiah uh, expressed to us. And by the way, there are things in your life that God has been, in mine as well, in yours my life, that God has been preparing you for, and you're not even yet aware that he's preparing you for it. He's been preparing you for something since you were two years old. 
and it's not going to show up in your life till you're 55 or 60 or 80. There's things, Moses was called at 80. Do you think God, well, man, you know, Moses is turning 80. We should do something with his life now. <laughs> was this a surprise to God? No, he had always, he had always said, zero through 40, this is going to be his training. 40 through 80, this is going to be a training. 80 through 120, now we're going to hit critical mass. Now you're going to deliver some people. You're going to do all kinds of things you never thought you'd do before. You're going to take steps of faith you never thought you'd for. God's preparing you for things that you are not yet aware of. He's preparing me for things that I'm not yet aware of. You may know some of it, and some of it, when you do find out what God's preparing, you may fight against it. When God reveals what he's doing, you say, well, I don't really want that. Moses had that original response. Lord, I'm right here. Send Aaron. <laughs> He's way better at this than I am. But when we learn that God has already prepared it, we have to submit to it, understand it. Paul might have, when he was unsaved, he wouldn't have agreed with any of this. But then when he gets saved, he's like, so be it, Lord. Thy will be done. This brings us to the second point of the, this beautiful revelation of what God is doing in humanity and the church, and that's his timing. At the timing of the resurrection of Jesus, it was the timing of when Jesus came. Why did he come in the Roman Empire? Why did it have to be at this specific time? Because God has a time and season for everything. The Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Soon after that poured out at Pentecost, then... The apostles were given some of the details that they would then go plant and teach in the churches, and it would be important that they saw what took place at Pentecost because they saw how the Spirit would unite people in one moment. They needed to see it and understand it. The foreshadow of the revelation of what God would do, even if they didn't understand how God would bring unite the world, Jesus foreshadowed what he was doing when he said, go into all the what? World. He didn't say hang out in Jerusalem. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And by the way, if you're a Jewish person living in Jerusalem and you have to go halfway around the world, you're nowhere near Jerusalem by that point. And you're either going to have to live with those people and become one with them, or you're going to like drop the news off and head back. But that wasn't God's plan. It was to make disciples. But by the way, when you make disciples, you don't just get a, uh, hey, pray this prayer. You're good to go. I'm out of here. I'll see you in heaven. Right? Making disciples means, hey, i got to stay here. Paul had to stay in Ephesus. He stayed the longest, three years, and had to teach the Scriptures how to live together. Me and my wife can't get along. Well, here's what the Bible says about that. We, our kids are having issues. Here's what the Bible has to say about that. What about this sin issue in my life? This is what the Bible says about that. That's why we come on Sunday, Wednesdays, Bible study, these things, because it's discipleship. You, Jesus didn't say, go and make converts. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. Now, in Colossians 1.26 says, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations has now been revealed to his saints. Again, Paul speaks of this mystery, that the mystery of Christ, that the church, God is raising up a church out of invisibility into the visibility of human beings like you and me. 
That's what it is. That God's taking the invisible nature of God and infusing it into the people of God, into one people that defies racism, that defies classism, that defies social stratas and all the things that the world sets up as walls. Jesus says, no, in my church, it will actually transcend those things. By 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem would be fully destroyed. Now understand, when Paul's writing this, the temple still exists. So if you were in Ephesus, you could go to Jerusalem and see that magnificent, ancient wonder of the world. The temple of Herod was unbelievable. To see it set on the hill, and it would shine, it would be, the, like I said before, the only reason it's not one of the eight wonders of the ancient world to me is anti-Semitism. It is it's, it's outright ridiculous that the temple would not be one of the ancient wonders of the world. It would have been more amazing than most of the things that are in the list. But nevertheless, the temple was still there in A.D. 70. The temple was there. And it would be destroyed by Titus in A.D. 70. But in God's timing, again, the timing of God, very in the same relative time as the temple would soon be destroyed, God was raising up a temple of the church. Isn't that? Well, that seems, what a, way, what a coincidence. The temple, the temple building collapses, but the temple church is raised up. Remember, Jesus said, you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up. He's raising it up in the church. The church is the temple that he would raise up in his body. First his body came, then comes Pentecost, and the church is baptized by the Holy Spirit. So the church becomes the, we are the temple, even though there's no temple in Jerusalem. Now God is going to rebuild the physical temple, but that, is, that has to do with a different covenant. And he has, already has everyone in place, and so now the temple is visible do you know the temple of God is now, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to see the temple of God. You can see it in Christians in Africa, South America, America, Europe, Asia. You can see the body of Christ. You can see the temple of the living God and the people of God. And you don't have to travel to Jerusalem to see it. That's a different blessing to go and see the things that God has done. But the temple is now the body of Christ. Christian, remember that in our lives, God's timing is perfect. He knew the temple would be destroyed, but he knew he was raising up his church to be the temple of the living God, which, again, Paul talked about that. Say, uh, Pastor Tim, uh, are you sure this is true? Go back to Ephesians 2, verse 21. Look at the verse, chapter 2, verse 21. In whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The body of Christ is becoming the temple of God. It already did with the resurrection of Jesus, but we're being fitted in. You and I are just, remember we talked about last week, we are stones that have been fitted in. And when Jesus inhabits the new rebuilt temple, we will be part of it all. But right now, we are the representatives of the temple of God in this world. And if we're in prayer and we're in God's word and we're surrendered to his will, we can be sure that his timing in our life will always be perfect. All things work together for good to them that are the called according to his purpose, even his timing. Let's look at the next point. We looked at uh, unveiled. How about uh, Paul himself here? Undeserved. Starting in verse 7, uh, Paul says, Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given to me by the affecting work in the power. Look at verse 8, which we didn't read yet, but let's look at verse 8. To me, 
who am less than the rest of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now with the revelation of this mystery that God is raising up his invisible church from the people of the world, Jew, Gentile, every tongue, tribe, nation, with this revelation we also understand that within the will of timing, will of God and the timing of God, uh, God has always had a delivery mechanism already in place. You know, if, I, if you say, hey, can say you're giving away a baby grand piano. You can give it away all you want, but if there ain't no way to get it there, we got a problem, don't we? Right? All I have is a little Jetta. Can I put it on top of it? Yes, and destroy your car in the process. But you get a piano out of the deal, right? There has to be a delivery mechanism, and God had a delivery mechanism in place. And we can know and appreciate that God will always have a delivery mechanism in place to accomplish his will and to accomplish his timing. He won't say, I'm going to do this without making sure there's a way. There'll have to be a virgin birth, right? There'll have to be uh, the apostles. There'll have to be the cross. He'll always have a delivery mechanism. And the first thing we want to look at here uh, that Paul references regarding his own life, his message and his messenger. Paul, again... Uh, would have a special calling uh, to bring this mystery to the world and to the Gentiles specifically. But first, let's look at the message. Uh, the message is grace. And by the way, that hasn't changed, has it? I have the same message. You have the same message. You say, well, I'm not an apostle. I'm not an apostle either. I'm not an apostle. You're not an apostle. They were the original apostles. But we have the same message of grace. The message is grace. Grace, grace. God's what? Grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Isn't that great to know? Where sin abounds, grace more abounds? This is the message we preach, that our sins can be cast as far as the east is from the west. And all people can receive this grace. Jews, Gentiles, every country. It didn't matter what your sins were or what religion you were in. Three times the word grace is mentioned in this early um, section of Scripture, verses 1 through 8, in verse 2, in verse 7, in verse 8. The word grace is mentioned all three times. It's similar like a verily, verily, verily. Jesus would sometimes say that for emphasis. And we have salvation, but we don't have salvation apart from grace, do we? Salvation and grace are forever joined together. There is no salvation without grace. We have no message of hope. We've talked about what does the word hope mean. I want this ingrained in all of our minds. The word hope means joyful expectation. Right? Joyful expectation. That's totally different than, boy, I hope I win the Powerball. You're not hopeful expectation. You're, you're, you're pretty sure that ain't going to happen. But the fact that Jesus will take us to heaven, that's a given, a guaranteed if we've repented, it's not a given for everyone, but it's a given to those that have repented. We have a joyful expectation. It's why I keep serving Jesus day in and day out, because I know I have a home that this is not it. That helps us to move forward. We have a joyful expectation that something far greater than Chesterfield, Virginia is coming. No disrespect to Chester. But this is where we live, right? Well, some of you live in Powhatan, but that's okay. <laughs> or Henrico, or Richmond City, or... But, RVA, 
We do have that really cool acronym now, don't we? Let's embrace it. RVA. We'll go with that. We have no message of hope without the salvation that comes through grace. And that's the message. But what about the messenger? Well, Paul is the messenger for this specific teaching, this epistle, this letter that he's writing, this information that he's sharing with the church, this mystery uh, that he's deconstructing by the Holy Spirit. Say, God says, I want you to write, Paul was a detailed guy, I want you to write it down and explain what I've been doing, what I in fact am doing. Nobody would have suspected that Paul would be the primary messenger. Nobody would have expected that the demoniac who used to run around naked slicing himself would be the first evangelist to Decapolis, right? But Jesus said, there's my guy right there. What? Yeah, the one y'all are petrified of, the one that never wears clothes, the one that actually uh, that it runs around the caves. He's going to be the first evangelist to the ten cities of Decapolis, which was primarily, by the way, Gentile cities over there on the other side of the Jordan. If you get a chance to go to Israel with us in 2019, you'll see exactly where those areas are. But in the case of Paul, nobody would have said, hey, you know what? I think I know who's going to explain God's love for the Gentile. It's Paul. He hates Gentiles. And God did a 180 in his life, right? So no one would have expected that Paul would be the primary messenger to kick off the Gentile inclusion tour. But that's what he was doing. It was Paul. God always knows what he's doing. He wanted Paul to be the absolute epitome of a vessel of grace. If you were an unlikely candidate for salvation, you're going to be a great use of God to help reach other people who are unlikely candidates of salvation. A vessel of grace will preach of the greatness of grace. Do you understand that? A vessel of grace will preach of the greatness of grace with a passion and a dedication that comes from a deep gratitude. The reason many people can't preach grace if they don't have a deep gratitude of it. It never became old hat or ho-hum to Paul. Yeah, I got saved. Yeah, I used to be pretty bad. But, you know, that was a long time ago. And salvation, I love when these new people get saved. They get all excited about it. Paul didn't think, it never became old to him. He continued to be amazed at grace. Amazing grace, how sweet. Now, it still was amazing to him year after year, decade after decade, he was still amazed by grace. You and I need to go back in our minds sometime and be amazed at grace again, or what God's done in our lives. We, we take for granted what God's done. We take for granted who we used to be versus who we are now. Paul was called by name and he was saved for this very role. This role was a messenger. And you've been called by name, brother and sister, for some specific role. You may be fulfilling that role. You may be fulfilling a portion of that role. You may soon fulfill it all. I don't know. But you've been called to fulfill a role within the family of God, within the temple of God. Paul fulfilled his role. Are we fulfilling our role? He fulfilled his role. He wasn't perfect, but he fulfilled it. Like Paul, we're just as undeserving of salvation as he is. We're also just as undeserving of being used by him. A lot of Christians think that, can you believe God's asking all this of me? Instead, we need to turn our thinking around and say, God, thank you for asking anything of me. We got it all backwards. 
We're whining about, why, why God, he's asking me to read two minutes? I can only read 12 hours of my smartphone, but he's asking me to read two minutes of the Bible? I mean, real. We got it backwards. We're undeserving. I think one of the biggest problems today, uh, Paul, he felt throughout his lifetime unworthy of salvation. There was never a time where he didn't feel unworthy of grace. There was never a time where he didn't feel, Lord, I'm so unworthy. But many today, and partly it's been the pulpits of America, partly it's been the, just the consumer culture of the church, we have unwittingly cheapened the gospel in this country and in the body of Christ. And I think one of the big problems today is many people in the church, they no longer feel unworthy. They feel rather worthy. So they can't humble themselves in the presence of God because they just don't feel unworthy. They feel pretty good. Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, to whom little is forgiven, loves little. If you don't think you've been forgiven much, you'll love very little. Yeah, that wasn't so bad. So I love God a little. Many don't really love the Lord. They don't want to glorify God with their lives like Paul did. They don't want to be used like Paul. Many in the church don't want to be used one one-hundredth of Paul. Let me say that again. Many in the church don't want to be used one one-hundredth of the life of Paul, and they're totally fine with it. Totally fine with it. They know it, but they won't talk to God about it, and God knows it. They just want to go to heaven. Plain and simple. I just want to go to heaven. God as long as that's okay, as long as I'm going to heaven, I'll take it from here. And that's it. And if others can go too, here's the, if others can go too, that's great, Lord. If others get to go to heaven, I'm fine with that. But I don't have any personal time to invest in that. God, I hope you send somebody, and I hope you raise some other Pauls, because I don't want to be Paul or even one one-hundredth of Paul. I don't have any time to invest the energy, the time, my finances, resources. I don't have it, Lord. But I do want to go to heaven with you one day. I want to be there with you for eternity. I want to hang out with you for all eternity. I just don't want to hang out with you now. Do you see the irony of this? I want to hang out with you forever. I just don't want to hang out with you now. The reason why Paul was so passionate he was always feeling unworthy. He was always wanting to be with God. So being with God eternally was the natural outflow of his life. And by the way, if we don't want anything to do but just go to heaven, that's a dangerous place to be, brother and sister. If we only look at God as a means to an end, rather than the end of ourselves, to his glory and to his praise, how are we any different than unbelievers? How would we, that, we would be no different than an unbeliever. Paul's unworthiness led him to humility, led him to gratitude of God. He desired to please God. He desired to know and serve God. He desired to love God and gave his life for his son. You know, when you study the men, of, men and women of the Bible, where they all came to a place is not religious. They came to a place of they were passionate in their relationship with God. The friend of God. Abraham, the friend of God. 
That's where God wants us to become. He wants to come to this place where we so desire his will, we so desire to worship, we so have this unworthiness that he then fills us with the like-mindedness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we start feeling unworthy of God's grace and unworthy of him even using us, we'll stop being uninterested and unmoved in his call in our life. Uh, did you hear that? When we stop being, when we start feeling unworthy, we will stop being unmoved. We'll actually move to the calling of which he's called us to. Let's look at the last thing this morning here. Unsearchable. We looked at the unveiled. We looked at um, the undeserved. And we close this morning this last piece, unsearchable. It mentions here in verse 8, again, Paul speaking to me, who is the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery from which the beginning of the ages have been hidden in God, which are all uh, hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to, listen to verse 10, principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal promise which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you which is for your glory. The mystery of the church, the birth of Christ in the church, the unity he ordains and us the messengers of the individual stones within the church, still finds us. All this stuff that we, that we see God is doing, guess what? We're still alive and sitting here on planet Earth. We can know, oh, now I know what God has done. I know what he did through Paul. I know what he's done at the cross. I know what he's done with grace. I understand all this, but we're still here on Earth with a very clear command from Jesus, a crystal clear command from Jesus, a big, massive, huge job to do. You think your job is big? Try saving the entire world. Just try getting the gospel out to every person in the world. This is a massive job. We have a million obstacles in our own life and the rest of the world to keep us from doing anything, much less all of it. And we have the enemy of our faith fighting against every single thing that God intends to do in you and in the church. That's enough to say, well, I know a lot, but I still think it's time to give up. But don't lose our focus. Don't lose who we're focused on. Don't lose heart. Don't forget we have an unstoppable God. What's impossible with men is possible with God, right? God doesn't look at all of this and say, what in the world are we going to do? We have an unlimited Savior who, as Paul says here, has unlimited riches. You think Gates and Buffett are rich? God has unlimited. There's not a limit. You couldn't put a number on it. B is not a big number in the universe, by the way. Billion is not a big number in the universe. We're talking about multiple trillions and trillions. God owns it all. He has all the resources that is disposable. The call and the task is absolutely great. I'm overwhelmed in life, how about you at times? At just my little piece of the pie. 
Am I the only one here who gets overwhelmed at times? At times, I look at my, my little thing, and, and, and all of planet Earth, I got three kids, I pastor a church, I start to total it up, I start to make a list of what needs to be done, and I just keep flipping pages. The list gets longer and longer, and then I get overwhelming. Lord, where in the world? You know what you do with that? I love what Martin Luther said. He goes, I have so much to do, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. <laughs> I've started doing this in my life, not three hours, but... I'm getting more and more and more on my knees, more and more and more on my knees. I'm getting more done. The more you spend time with God, the more God eliminates things from the spiritual realm. He can kick any problem out and reduce it to size, but first he has to reduce us. And that's what he does. The call is great, but the God who saved us is greater, and he will not fail to fulfill his will. The two final things we're going to look at this morning related to the call of the church and how God intends it to fill it are these two right here, his mission and his resources. His mission, we did not create or even think of this mission that God has given the church. We didn't come up with it. We couldn't have come up with it. We definitely wouldn't have come up with it. He revealed it to us. First, he revealed it, our need for salvation, and we responded to that. But then he's revealed our place within this mission. Because God so loves the world, the mission is the whole world. He first starts with you and me and our little zip code. We had to get saved first, but the mission doesn't change. It's still global. It's still all people. It's all nations. It's all tongues. It's all tribes. When we were personally in crisis, when we were in chaos, when we were in corruption, or we were just comfortably numb, and Christ found us, he made us alive to the reality of our personal need, but then he made us alive to the reality of the mission, that God was on a mission to reach everyone. Yes, he cares about people you've never heard of or thought of, or me either. He cares about someone right now that God can see a face who's walking on the streets of Paris and he knows exactly who they are. He knows about someone who's right now in the middle of South Africa that no one knows their name. He knows every single person. There's no one on planet Earth that God is not concerned. This mission must get to them too. Now we know that God loved the world. We know that Jesus finished the work of salvation and he was sent into the world. But there's more. And that's what Paul is telling me. There's more. It's not just that God sent but this mission involves you, Ephesians, you, Calvary Chapel, Richmond. Now, I want us to look at the more detailed picture of the mission that God outlines and portrays in verses 8 through 11 here. And look, and we want to close with the confidence and the supernatural resource that God has promised to bring everything to completion. Do you believe God will bring everything to completion? Do you believe he'll bring you to completion? Sometimes we can believe, he'll believe, oh yeah, I believe he's going to complete everybody else, just not me. Now he's going to bring us to completion too. So, in addition to saving his church, in addition to sending his church, we're reminded here that he's unifying his church, in verse 9, to make all see the fellowship of the mystery. The fellowship. God is uniting us. We, this church has grown in love tremendously in the last three or four years. But did you know we can grow more? You're going to hear me say this from now until the day I die. We've come a long way, and we have a long way to go. That's okay. We should always be growing. You stop growing, there's a problem. Because we're nowhere near where God is. But he's saying, you would come to know the fellowship. The fellowship would get deeper, sweeter, more of the Spirit, more 
diverse, more unified. And the world will look on and say, what in the world are you guys doing? We're doing nothing but surrendering to Jesus. What's the formula? What, what church consultancy did you use? The Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. But when we see that he desires the church not only to be part of this mission, but God desires the church to display his glory. Did you know that? It says right here in the text. So I didn't see that. Well, you will in just a second. He desires the church to display his glory, not only in this world as a testimony to the unsaved and even to the saved, but also, did you know that God wants the church to be a witness to the angelic realm? Look what it says. It says that the church, verse 10, the middle of the verse, by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And by the way, this is not just the good angels. This is that the church is a witness to the fallen the demonic world too. That the church is a witness to the angels to say, the angels that stay with God, two-thirds of the angels are still serving God. You've heard of Michael, the archangel, right? And the, the angels that stayed with the Lord, they look at the church and they're amazed at the grace of God. But the demonic world looks at the church and they're amazed that the church keeps plowing through the evil schemes of Satan and nothing can stop it. And they're amazed. And they're frightened, too, what God is doing, because they see their end is coming. The presence and perseverance of the church fulfills the mission of God. It reminds the angelic realm of God's faithfulness, but it also reminds the fallen angels of their fate, that they will, they're doomed. That Satan's are, he was already defeated at the cross. Every day the church moves a step forward. It's a witness to the demonic realm that they can't stop. By the way, Satan might torment us at times in life, but he can't defeat us. And you can't destroy it. That's why you're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. And all this is according to the eternal purposes beyond our knowledge. And so we understand the mission is not just to reach, but also to reflect. To reach, but reflect the glory of God. And we want to close this morning with this last point, his resources. You, me, together as a church, we have access to God the Father. It says right here, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through him in faith. We have access to God the Father. He owns all the riches. He owns all the resources of the universe. The hidden riches by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, there are a lot of hidden riches that God has not yet revealed to you or to me. I pray that God meets needs in all of your life. I really do. I pray that he meets needs in this church. And the really cool thing is he can meet them in ways that you and I have never even thought of. Here's the way we think about needs. The only way he's going to meet this need, if I give my life every ounce of energy to my, my job and this and that and, 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 and whatever tiny bit's left for God, I'll give him that and then all my needs will be met. And God says, no, 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 you've, you've never believed this verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Many Christians say, that was for the early church. That's not for today. I must sell everything but my soul to make sure I take care of everything. And what's left, I'll give God a tip. But it's never going to work. God says, I have the riches. Your company doesn't have the riches. You're, say, what if God took your health away tomorrow? Your plan would fall apart. So we could... If we can't trust in the boss and we can't trust in our company and we can't trust in our health, who should we be trusting in? God says, 
come with boldness to me. Come with confidence to me. You can't hold on to any of it. You can't say, well, this, my plan will work. God says, look, you don't even know. What is your, your life's a vapor? It's a paradox that we can come with boldness and confidence to God, but yet we first have to come in humble surrender as a living sacrifice. Do you, you understand this? We can come with boldness and confidence to God, but not until we first come in sacrificial, humble surrender. We have to humble ourselves first. Then we can come boldly. The surrendered servant can ask for anything of his master, but you have to be the surrendered servant first. We can seek his power. We can seek his help. Otherwise, if we don't seek his power and we seek his help, we'll be on autopilot or we'll be copying everyone else's techniques. By the way, as a church... You know, I ride by churches sometimes, and I have a momentary coveting moment. Like, wow, I'd love to have that on our property. God says, snap out of it. <laughs> Your church looks, our church doesn't look like much on the outside. I know it. I call it our fixer-upper here. People, people come in the building, wow, it's much nicer than I expected. That's a, that's a backhanded compliment for us. They're basically saying, you know, I woke up and I was like, are you guys even in business? Or, you know, like, I know the bricks got cracks in it, all the other stuff. We get it. But that's kind of how we are. We're, kinda, we're, not, we're not so great on the outside, but we should be filled with the Holy Spirit on the inside. Right? It's not about how great we look or how, you know, everyone's trying to impress everybody. God says, look, just... Be filled with me. You know, Paul didn't have all this stuff, but boy, if you needed to be healed and you needed an apostle, it was a good thing he came around, right? Right? He had other things that God anointed for a reason. And I want to close with this poem. Listen to this. It says, A city full of churches, great preachers, lettered men, grand music, choirs, and organs. If all these fail, what then? Good workers, eager, earnest, who labor hour by hour, but where, oh, where, my brother, is God's almighty power? Refinement, education, they want the very best. Their plans and schemes are perfect. They give themselves no rest. They get the best of talent. They try their uttermost. But what they need, my brother, is God the Holy Ghost. That's what the church... Jesus says, look, I have the unsearchable riches. You're trying to build it yourself. You're trying to build your personal life yourself. You're trying to build your church yourself. And God says, look, come humbly but boldly into the throne room of God. And he'll give us rest. Amen.